Our scripture reading today comes from 1 Samuel, chapter 31, verses 1 through 13. If you have a Bible, you can turn in that. There's a few in the chairs in front of you, or you can follow along on the screens up front. 1 Samuel, chapter 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Machielchua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it, and when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers through the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtra, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Gabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the body of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to, Je to Jebesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. This ends the reading of, our, of the word of God, and also at this time, children ages three through kindergarten can be dismissed to the little landing. Good morning, faith family at the landing. What a glorious day to worship the Lord. I am so thrilled to be here worshiping him with you. What a joy. Thank you for joining us by live stream and those who join us by recording. May the Lord continue to meet you as he has in prayer and in singing and in the word now. This is the last sermon out of 1 Samuel. Can't believe it. It's come so fast. Lord willing, the next two Sundays, I'll be preaching out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we celebrate Holy Week for 2023, 2022 rather, not that far ahead, 2022. After that, I'll be gone for a week uh, to a theological conference down in Louisville, Kentucky. Pastor Andrew will be preaching the Sunday after Easter, April 24th. And then when I return, the first Sunday in May, May 1st, I'll begin a new series of messages out of the book of Revelation. After I preach through the book of Revelation, and I know this is assuming a lot, <laughs> that I'll be alive, that, that you'll want me to come back, that God will permit me, Lord willing, we'll return to 2 Samuel. Such a presumptuous plan. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, how it's bottomless, 
how it's overflowing with truth and wonder and glory to show us yourself and your ways in such a way that we don't become haughty or critical or adult in the way we hold you at arm's length thinking we've got you boxed in and defined. But rather that we become ever more childlike, ever more humbled, ever more certain of your worth and mysterious yet precious glory, ever more bold and free like a child to tell others of the good news of grace found alone in Jesus Christ, ever more quickly to come with good news to the sick, for it's to the sick you came and not the well. Ever more eager for your swift and sovereign return to establish your great kingdom on the earth. We would be secret monarchs in that kingdom today. While the world misunderstands and criticizes and belittles and dismisses, we would be crowned princes and princesses bowing before our high king, Jesus. We exalt you. We are happy when you are high and lifted up. And we are made low before you. Be exalted in our worship over this last precious chapter of 1 Samuel, I pray. Teach us from it. Meet us in it. Shape us by it. And send the gospel to the nations. Launched from it in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Who's your king? Who's your God? That's the whole point of 1 Samuel. Who's your king? Who's your God? Who runs your world? Who do you ultimately bow the knee and bear full allegiance to? Two choices. It's either you and everything evil you represent, or it's God and everything glorious he is. Those are the only two options. 1 Samuel is written, the summary of 1 Samuel is this. If you know God, you bow before him in absolute allegiance and joy. And you say, he's my king. He's my God. I don't want to follow myself. If I'm like myself, I'm going to end up alone on a hill killing myself and falling on my sword and taking my whole family with me. If I follow myself, that's where I'll go. It's so normal. Everybody's born ready to follow themselves. Everybody's born under the assumption that I'm the best person to guide my own life. It's so common and normal, even, even defined to be 
fallen in this human world that I'm going to be submitted to my life as my guide, my authority, my king. What I want is what's best for me. I know what's best. Trust my gut. Trust my heart. Trust all those who are around me telling me I'm everything and I've got the answer and guide to my life. That leads to a bloody hill where you fall on your own sword and die. And the worst part about that isn't the sword, the hill, or the blood. It's waking up in the presence of judgment for eternity. Saul's life comes to its close here in this chapter. Saul dies. He takes his own life in suicide. The whole point is to say God has been preparing and raising up David as king. David began small and he's elevated step by step into this glorious place of just being on the brink of being anointed king over Judah. God's anointed chosen king. And Saul started out so well, head and shoulders above all the men of Israel, and yet he's declined step by step just as steadily until this tragic and sorrowful and painful end. But it's not especially about two men, David and Saul. You'd misunderstand if literally you just saw this sort of clever X that their two lives make. The point of that X of their two lives throughout 1 Samuel is that you would see that in 1 Samuel, in Saul and David, and in all nations and all peoples at all times, including right now in your heart, is the question, who do you bow the knee to, God or yourself? The battle is not between David and Saul or the Philistines and the Israelites. The battle is between you worshiping God as the Lord and King who made you, loves you, and rules over you in love, or whether you're going to give yourself to the lie that you can be your own King, Savior, and God. The devil comes alongside and he says, through the evil in the world and through all manner of voices raging within and without, you can do it. Nobody else has succeeded. Saul was an idiot. He failed. But you can do it. You can do it. You can be your own God. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ, Jesus said. But the gates of hell are wide open and they're trying like crazy even right now. I talked to a pastor friend that God providentially caused my family and me to, to cross paths with on Friday who said he's got several witches worshiping at his church. I better pray for him right now. Father, I pray for my dear pastor friend who's preaching right now like I am. And I just thought about these witches that he told me about that are in his church. I bet they don't have good plans for beauty and honor and truth and glory for Jesus Christ. But would you thwart whatever plans they brought in and would you save them? What a testimony it would be to the community that he lives in and to the goodness of the gospel if two witches abandon Wiccan worship and worship Jesus Christ alone. I pray this in his name. Amen. This battle... It's raging inside your heart right now is a battle for who you ultimately worship. Do you and I worship the Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever in his presence, beginning right now? Or do you and I 
ultimately worship ourselves and find ourselves separated from the joy of his presence and under the wrath of his condemnation forever and ever with never an end. You see the battle. The battle is fundamentally spiritual. So the Apostle Paul tells us as believers to stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for our feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, that in all circumstances we might take up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming darts of the devil, the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, the words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly, to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You see what's at stake? If Christians see that this is a spiritual battle, and the spiritual battle is won by my taking the muscle of prayer and swinging the broad sword of the Word of God, that I have the power in God through my muscles and swinging that sword to affect Paul's apostolic power to preach the gospel and people to get saved. I am an utter, chirping cricket, powerless to do any good in anyone's life unless somebody's praying that the Word of God go out in power right now. When you share the gospel with someone who is hardened and cold against the gospel, the power isn't in their wisdom or smart choices to choose to believe or even in your clever manipulation in what you say. The power is in God and His ability to soften hard, icy, cold hearts and warm them to the childlike things that you feel like you're fumbling as you speak. The gospel is at stake in 1 Samuel and in 1 Samuel 31, and you're going to see the gospel like you've never seen it before in this chapter. I'm seeing the gospel like I've never seen it before in 1 Samuel 31. It never, ever fails. I tremble at what I'm about to share with you. There are three gospel mysteries in this chapter. I want you to see all of them. Remember, we're looking through Saul's life, through David's life, through the events to see what God is like and how he calls us to worship him and reject the worship of ourselves. First, I want you to see the justice of God. Second, I want you to see the faithfulness of God. Third, I want you to see the mercy of God. And with that, we'll come to the Lord's table. Look at verses 1 and 2, the justice of God. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The Philistines had mighty horses and chariots that could not make it up the high hill of Gilboa. Saul and his sons and the Israelite army raced up the Mount of Gilboa. And while those chariots could not catch them at the top of Gilboa, there's only a traversing road that goes to the top and the chariots were far too slow to get up there. The arrows could. And they pierced Saul, probably his sons as well. God who rules and reigns over the flight of arrows, the flight of bullets, the flight of missiles and bombs, the flight of artillery, the flight of all weaponry, ordered the arrows 
to pierce Saul. Saul falls on his sword. After asking his armor bearer to kill him, his armor bearer refuses. Saul doesn't want to be abused by the evil pagan uncircumcised Philistines, so he commits suicide. He honorably refuses to let his body be abused, shamed, reviled by the Philistines, and he kills himself. Likely, he is not only refusing his enemies, he's acting in some kind of cowardice. We don't know his heart. We know he was unwilling to be taken captive, alive, and unspeakable things be done. So he falls on his sword and he dies. And the Philistines gain a great military victory. Not only does Saul die, but his three sons die. And we know and love so much his son Jonathan, and yet Jonathan dies. And all the Israelites are terrified. The Israelite army flees. And then when the people of Israel or Judah notice that the Israelite army is being routed by the Philistines, the people leave their own villages and the Philistines come into southern Judah and occupy all the communities. With the eyes of the flesh, you might see what's happening in these first verses as Saul committing suicide. He does commit the sin of suicide. Suicide is in fact a sin because it's the taking of a human life, but it's not the unforgivable sin. There's this horrible tradition in Christianity that seems to have this ongoing grip on those who are not reading their Bibles carefully to think that the only way that a sin can be covered is if after you commit the sin you can ask forgiveness for it. So suicide by definition doesn't leave you capable of asking for forgiveness after it. So there's this horrible, false gospel out there that says, the only grace I get is the grace that I actually can speak out and ask for. And this is everywhere. I've been to church services and funeral services for people who've taken their own lives, and you hear pastors and teachers and leaders, singers and witness givers from the front unwilling to say, If this person is in heaven or not. Do you know what? If you trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you're forgiven of all your past, your present, and your future sins. Amen? That's what I would die for. (laughs) That's what I die for. I am not judged before God by the moral quality of the very last act I do. I'm judged before God by the moral quality of the righteous acts of another. That's why I'm a Christian. We don't know where Saul was. Saul and God know alone. We have no evidence in the Bible that he trusted Christ. My point is, this suicide is sin, but it points to deeper realities. How does the Bible define what happened to Saul here. Let's let the Bible inform the way we read about what happened to Saul. Listen to the way 1 Chronicles chapter 10 defines what's happening here on Mount Gilboa. 1 Chronicles 10, 13, so Saul died for his breach of faith. Saul died for his breach of faith. He didn't just die because of the Philistine army. He didn't just die because of suicide. He didn't just die for other sins. He died for his lack of faith. The writer of 1 Chronicles 10 goes on. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the commandment of the Lord 
and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Saul committed suicide. God put Saul to death. Saul fell on his sword. God put Saul to death. When the Bible looks at Saul's self-destruction on Mount Gilboa, the eyes of faith look at it and say, that's God doing it. In and through what Saul's doing, God is doing it. So Paul preaches in Acts 13 so plainly who's at work and why. Saul preaches, then they, or rather Paul preaches, then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he, God, had removed him, Saul was removed by God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What you're seeing in Saul's death is justice. God says, because of death entering the world, all persons are guilty of sin under the curse. When God brings death in the life of any human being, his justice is being achieved. God is permitting and causing death around the world by the millions and millions each day. It's his justice being affected on the world. It's his holy character being carried out in the ending of life. What's far more important isn't just the ending of physical life. What's far, infinitely far more important is where the doorway of death leads to. For the Christian, death is defanged. Christ has taken the effect, the guilt, the condemnation of death from us. And he has replaced it with death becoming our servant. And death then becomes a passageway, a means by which we enter into the eternal life promised us through faith in Jesus Christ. For the unbeliever, death is the very best day of their lives. It gets harder and more horrific thereafter. Every one of us will die. We are not to make friends with death. It's the last enemy. Every one of us will die. And the question that I'm aiming to help you answer is, am I ready to die well in the Lord? Do I leave out of this room? Do I sit in this meeting? If it's the meeting in which my heart beats its last beating. Have you been in meetings where someone enters into the meeting ready to participate and they come out on a stretcher? I have. If I drive home, if I go to my Sunday or Monday or weekly events, if I travel, if I interact with someone, if I walk through the plans that are laid in my calendar and God says today is the last day, will I die well in the Lord? The only people who are of any use in this world today are those who are ready to die well in the Lord. The justice of God is on display here. God says, death serves the believer. Death is the means by which we believers enter into the presence of Christ. 
So get ready to die. Get ready to die well in the Lord. Trust in Christ. Bow the knee before King Jesus and say, Lord, I too long have made myself the God and the authority and the king of my own life. I ask you to forgive me for I repent. I ask you to make yourself my king. For those who are walking through life as their own king, like Saul was, what's sad is even though God is sovereignly wise and purposeful and permissive over all that happens on the, in the earth, they are already, as it were, dead. They're walking dead. They're like zombies. They haven't died to themselves and lived for Christ and therefore surrendered to God's absolute sovereignty. And so they live for themselves in this kind of living death. My call and invitation to everyone in the hearing of my voice is let Saul be a warning for you to press yourself to the prayer of humiliation and repentance and say, Lord, I want to entrust myself to you as my king. Second, you see the faithfulness of God. One of the most painful paragraphs in all the Bible we're about to read a paragraph that makes it look like idolatry wins and God loses. Verses 8 through 10. The pagans have won their victory. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry... The good news to the house of the, their idols and to the people. God is dead. Yahweh lost. Pagan idols won. Philistines, we won. We have been bothered and oppressed by these Israelites and their God for so many decades. For so long, we finally get the last word. We've got the head and body of their King Saul. We've even got his three sons. There's no more dynasty of Saul left to rule against us. We've even got, as we've heard, their famous David, killer of Goliath, on our side. We will celebrate the win for the pagan god, Ashtaroth, Dagon, all their pagan gods. We will send the good news throughout Philistia and everyone should hear that Saul and the Israelites and their god has failed and has died. We, we Philistines and our pagan god, we've won. It's, it's almost like a worshipful act. It's almost like up on a mountain there is bloodshed and then there is the nailing of a body to a wall and then there's the celebrating of the gods behind all that and then there's the spreading of the good news. It's almost like the only thing Satan can do is to pervert the good news of the gospel of God in Christ and twist it into this dark pagan celebration over the battle won by the Philistines. So what of God and his promises? What of the promise made to Abraham that the people of Israel will be like the sands of the sea? What of the promises made to Moses? 
What of the promises made through Hannah's song? 1 Samuel 2.10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. What of that? Against them he will thunder in heaven. Where was that? The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. Where was that? And exalt the horn of his anointed. I didn't see that. It seems like God lost. For Israel, their existence as a nation comes into question. The power of God and His Word it completely looks like a failure to them. This is Pearl Harbor, Vietnam, 9-11, COVID, and Putin's war all rolled into one. King Saul is dead, Israel's defeated, God's promises fail, and His land occupied by the uncircumcised pagan, and they're celebrating. If Eli's pregnant daughter-in-law, a generation before, cried Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has departed over Israel when Eli and his two sons died on one day. How much more must they cry Ichabod over Israel now? But wait. <laughs> Didn't Samuel, by his spirit raised from the dead by God, in the home of the witch of Endor, Speak to Saul and say, The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand. Of the Philistines. You see, the one who gets to tell the future and then make it happen is the one who rules over all things. The one who gets to say it first so that it happens just that way, he's the one who rules over all. Jesus said, didn't he, John 13, 19, I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it takes place, you may believe that I am he. You know who God is. He's the one who says the future and then the future comes to pass as he said it. God planned this. God's purpose is unfolding in Saul's death. We saw that in 1 Chronicles 10. We don't cry, Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has departed. We cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God's faithfulness is on display in the death of Saul and events that led up to it. He promised this and now it's coming to pass. God always keeps his promises. Every time you see a rainbow, believe in your heart. All that it means is always, no matter what it's intended for, it always means God always keeps his promises. Think of Mount Gilboa and Saul killing himself with his own sword in tragic end. Every time you see a rainbow that's misused. Be warned if you've chosen another path other than God's faithfulness in Jesus Christ. Be warned if you've created another religion to get to God. Be warned if you think there's a path you alone can walk to get to God apart from knowing Jesus Christ or submitting yourself to Him in His faithfulness. Be warned, all the religions of the world, be, lorn, be warned, all the godless, irreligious people of the world, your religion is just simply your politics. 
or your education or your self-preservation or a hundred other counterfeits. Be warned all who have turned away from Jesus Christ for there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Save the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Reject him and die. Receive him and live. Remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? God is just and God is faithful. All to magnify this gospel ministry. Now we see finally God is merciful. Look back to 1 Samuel with me. Verses 11 through 13. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead, you might remember these guys. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethchan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Here are brave and valiant men from a place called Jabesh-Gilead. If you think way back to chapter 11, you might remember this was the one shining spot in Saul's life where he rescued from the Ammonite army the people of Jabesh-Gilead. He became a hero to them. And they remembered that he deliberated and made his decisions under the tamarisk tree. They might have remembered that it was under the tamarisk tree that Abraham planted, that he called on the everlasting goodness and faithfulness of the Lord, his mercy, and that just in the very next moments, a a, a ram was provided in the thicket to rescue Abraham's son Isaac. The tamarisk tree is a sign of God's favor and mercy for the people of Jabesh Gilead and for the Israelite people. And so they take respectfully and lovingly the the abused body down from the wall. And and instead of letting it be in this abused state, they take this body with affection and with bravery. And they they create a, a, a king's funeral pyre and they burn respectfully Saul's remains. And then the remains are buried under that tamarisk tree in Jabesh. And in Worship and honor of the God of Saul and their thanks to even this broken and sinful man who was used by God for their salvation, their rescue. They fast for seven days in worship. There's a mercy embedded in this story. This story just doesn't tell us just how thankful the Jabesh Gilead men are. They are. And it doesn't just tell us to look at Saul's life through a 
uh, a holistic picture of all of his flaws and sins as well as, as his victories. It points further to the fact that these men of Jabesh Gilead represent the kind of person that God has been raising up now for 40 years. King David. God has a king who is like this. He's careful and tender and respectful. He wants to honor Saul always. If, if we could, as a foretaste, think about for, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1, you would read there how David is immediately raised up as king. We've been waiting for the whole book of 1 Samuel for David to be king, and he's king in the first chapter of 2 Samuel. He hears an Amalekite come and try to take uh, the blame on himself or the credit, as it were, for killing Saul. That gets the Amalekite killed. And then David says this. Listen carefully to 2 Samuel. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord. Because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. And I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul, your Lord, is dead. And the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. David says, I'm king Saul is dead, and we know David himself will soon die. But there's something in these men of Jabesh-Gilead, some honor and some mercy and some God-seeking faith that we see fully in David, and yet even though David dies, we see it fully spun out in the unfolding of history as it comes to its climax in the son of David, Jesus Christ. Peter's preaching a thousand years later, and he thousand years later, and he says, "Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up." And of that, we are all witnesses. You see, Jesus is seated on the throne of David at the right hand of the throne of majesty on high, according to Hebrews 8, 1 and 2. He offered himself on the cross for the sins of all who would believe in him, for the sins of everyone who cries out to him and receives him. This Christ is the son of David, and it's hinted and foreshadowed in the work these men from Jabesh Gilead do to honor Saul. It's made explicit through the rest of 2 Samuel, and we've seen it over and over. The pictures that are here in this chapter point us forward to Christ. Saul fell on his sword in cowardice to refuse his enemies to abuse. their desire to abuse him, and he did so, committing suicide. In contrast, Christ at the cross falls on his sword in joy and in love to give himself to his enemies as a sacrifice. 
So let your hands be strong and be valiant, like David says to the men of Jabesh Gilead. Trust in Christ. All who are believers in Jesus Christ, welcome to this table. This, this table, as it were, on our own Mount Gilboa, where, where we're like Saul and we're like the Philistines, and yet at the, at the very same moment we see in this horrible event of the death of Saul the foretaste of one, by contrast, who in righteousness allows himself to be given over to his enemies in order that he might die for the sin of his enemies. While we were Christ's enemies, Christ died for us, says Paul to the Romans. You are ready to die today. You are ready to say, Lord, I'm, I'm at your disposal. I will live my life completely dedicated to you because I'm ready to die. This bread and this cup symbolize the forgiveness that you've achieved for me, how your body was broken, how you fell on your sword so that I would never have to in eternal death. I receive it. If you're a believer, take of this bread and this cup today. Celebrate the fact that Christ died for you. Celebrate the fact that your sins are forgiven. Celebrate the fact that you can die well and that you're not living in fear and you're not living in rebellion and you're not living for your own glory, but that you by faith are living for his honor and glory in full obedience and in joyful submission to King Jesus. Let's pray. Prepare our hearts, Lord, now for the table. Prepare our hearts for the glory and the wonder and the power of this event. This is a spiritual transaction. Some, when they take it without examining the body in a worthy manner, fall asleep and die. So we're not inviting anyone to this table who doesn't know you, Lord. But everyone who knows you, come to this table. Deny not identifying with your Savior. Embrace Him fully. Submit to Him fully. Love him fully. Lord, I thank you so much for 1 Samuel 31 and all of 1 Samuel. Thank you for the prophetic word that was spoken months and months ago that we as a church would do well to turn to this book of the Bible and how sweet, how deep, how rich it has been. It's been like you've been talking above us and beyond us and woven it into the events of the world and woven it into the events of our lives. You've built us up and blessed us through this to many obscure book of the Bible and yet it has been so immediate and fresh. Thank you for the way that you are causing to melt like winter snow in the bright April sunshine the hardness of hearts right now. Thank you for the way you are taking your word and the power of your death and resurrection to draw with excitement and joy people to yourself that they might live with all their might in the hours, days, and decades you've planned for them to honor and serve Jesus Christ. Receive us, Lord, even as we receive you at this table. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen.